0: Audio conversation with Andy Colvin, recorded September 1st, 2013. Now, uh, as I speak these words, that is well over a year ago, that is 13 months ago, almost to the day. Uh, I don't have a very good excuse for why I haven't posted this until now. Uh, What I can say is just some life events came up, and I just never got to it, and uh, it just sat there languishing on my desktop. My initial reason for reaching out to Andy and contacting him was I wanted to help promote a book, a book that seemed very interesting to me. And this would be uh, some collected writings of John Keel. The title of the book is Flying Saucer to the Center of Your Mind Selected Writings of John A. Keel. Uh, Andy Colvin was the editor, uh, Gray Barker, uh, there's an essay that that acts as the forward, and Tessa Dick, that would be the widow of Philip K. Dick, wrote the introduction. Uh, curiously, it was published on September 11th, uh, a date uh, kind of hot with uh, synchronistic power. Uh, so what happened was I, uh, it was I think it was like a rainy Sunday afternoon. I got a hold of Andy through Facebook, and I said, hey, can I do a quick audio interview? just to help promote this book. The book seemed great and he got back to me right away and he said yeah let's do it right now. So I kind of jumped in there a little bit unprepared which is uh, good and bad and um, I was hoping to do just a little half hour talk and uh, we talked for about an hour and a half. Some of that was um, a little bit of there was some technical difficulties with sound quality and such so um, some stuff got snipped off. So what you're listening to is about an hour and five minutes of Andy and myself talking about um, Andy's research as well as this book. What I did today, just now, is I went through and uh, cleaned it up. I edited some stuff out. There was some extraneous stuff at the beginning and the end. And there was a little bit of sound quality issue. Uh, There was some construction going on right outside of Andy's window and there was no way to muffle that or baffle that, so you'll hear some clonking uh, going on, and that uh, and I I put a fair amount of work cleaning that up and getting that out so what you're listening to is a pretty tidy conversation between myself and Andy w- focusing on the work of John Keel now I have almost every John Keel book on my shelf here I, I, I think I'm shy one or two and uh, I went through a really intense period, gosh, going back over ten years ago now, uh, where I read everything I could get my hands on of John Keel. And Keel, along with Jacques Vallée, had a huge influence on how I frame this stuff. I'll I'll add Whitley Streber to that, too. Uh, Had a huge influence on how I frame the totality of this mystery, Uh, this uh, absurd quality that this mystery has, this UFO mystery that bleeds out all over the place with no easy way to confine it all in. I, I have a sort of, a sort of test I give something as far as if it is a credible story. And this is from my own personal experiences. If the story itself is somewhat absurd. And if it is really hard to rein in, if the spider webs go everywhere, uh, the more I trust it. I think that is the nature of this weirdness. And and you'll certainly uh, uh, sense that in this conversation. So uh, this talk uh, runs about an hour and five minutes long. Please enjoy. Hey Andy, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me.
1: Thanks for having me, Mike. We uh, we just started to do this on the spur of the moment, uh, so uh, sometimes that works out the best.
0: Yep, and, and the, what I was uh, seeing, and I was seeing it online, and I think it was just on Facebook, there was a couple references, I think, from both you and from Skylar Alphegrin, was that there was a new book being published, and the title of this book is Flying Saucers to the Center of Your Mind, in uh, it's selected writings of John Keel, and that would be a collection of some of his writings that were not in his books. Is that correct?
1: Correct. The ideas are in his books. He, he wrote these articles, uh, most of them in the late sixties. And then he, because he had sold those to the magazines, he then basically rewrote them for his books. So it's, it's a lot of the same information just told differently. And he also adds different details um, stuff that uh, later got edited out because uh, he did a you know a more general book. Let's say he did one you know Mothman prophecies or something. He would he wouldn't use every detail that was in his initial article about it. But some of those details are really interesting. So there is a lot of stuff in there that you've not seen before. Different little odds and ends, uh, pieces of evidence that he found. Names, places, dates, uh, materials that were found at UFO sites, unusual stuff, and enlightening, I think. And it, I started reading these maybe four or five years ago, and it took me quite a while to collect all of them, enough for three books. So,
0: And, and then but, you say uh, three books, but yeah, so I just mentioned one. Yeah, go ahead and fill me in on what the other two are.
1: The second one is uh, The Outer Limits of the Twilight Zone. And the third one is searching for the string. And searching for the string refers to one of the metaphors that uh, or analogies Keel used when he was talking about uh, how do you find the answer to the UFO riddle? You have to follow the string. And we actually used that in a song. Uh, we took a, a piece, some pieces from one of his lectures, and there are some of the lectures in the books as well. And then we put that into a song called The String, which has uh, gotten some airplay. It's it's kind of a little short dance tune, and it's got John Keel rapping to it. I should send it to you. Maybe you can put it on there
0: when okay, you're uh,
1: on the show. So uh, we've got those three books, and um, <clears throat> after reading those, I had a lot better idea of what it sort of verified for me some of the suspicions I had about the terrestrial part of the phenomenon. Like some of these details about things that were found at sites uh, point towards certain companies, uh, organizations, and stuff like that.
0: Oh, give me some examples.
1: Oh, there, a lot of the materials were were, were earth-based, uh, like, uh, common sort of things. But there was a lot of silicon, which is not common. Like- silica... Uh, silica in sand is common, but not silicone. Silicone is uh, made by uh, DuPont Carbide. Those, those, those plants that were in the area that, that I grew up in and where Keel was investigating. So I started seeing some links there to... Possible manufacture of actual drones and things in the area, and that may be what was behind some of it. I don't think all of it. There's an overlap of natural, natural UFO phenomenon and what I call synthetic or man-made objects. And this is tended. The fact that there are two things going on has really confused the issue for the you know ever since the beginning. And Keel was hinting at these things sometimes he would be talking about natural ufos and sometimes he'd be talking about something else
0: and the something else would be i mean the natural ufo meaning natural from this earth or
1: yeah yeah and there's a there's a third category that crosses over into the other two which is the induced ufo experience so naturally or synthetically you can be induced to have a UFO experience that is semi hallucinatory.
0: And that would be by the, Some... U- the UFO occupants would be doing that or? Well, no
1: one really knows. I mean, it can be, you can have a, per, per case you don't know, but, but there, you know, we do know that in a, there are natural geomagnetic forces that can send you into a trance where you have an involved experience with the UFO. And there's also synthetic ways to do that using electromagnetism and hypnosis and things. Um, And he wrote a lot about that. So you've got three things there really uh, confusing the issue and has led to a lot of all kinds of disagreements and and, uh, different camps in ufology, you know, buying into one or the other. When it's really sort of best to say, play it, play it, um, thinking of a basketball analogy here, you kind of play it loose where you don't, you know, buy into any of them in particular because whatever case you're looking at might be one or the other or the other. And the man-made part of it I think is very small, a small percentage of it. And I think Keel thought that too. And you kind of get just get a better sense in reading these old articles that he felt that way too. But he I think he also <clears throat> at that time there was a lot of pressure to report a certain way because it was a hot issue at the time. The men in black were out going after people and researchers who would point in their direction. So Keel had to be very careful about everything he wrote. And I think this explains some of the symbolic things that are going on. There's almost like a code where he's saying one thing and also saying another thing at the same time. He's saying something that will mollify the publishers, so that they'll print the article without editing. But I think they took some things out that would clarify stuff. But they, did, they took those things out, so some of the articles had possible confusions that could happen like that. And as an editor, I tried to to make sure that uh, it was clear clear as possible without, you know, putting words in, in Keel's mouth. And I think I did that. it, it comes you can tell that he suspected uh, you know, breakaway type civilization that had this technology. It it didn't explain all of it because some of this stuff is hallucinatory. But some of it could actually be A breakaway civilization, and whether that goes way back in time to the days of the King of the World and the Orient and all that, or if it's more like ex Nazis who, you know, put together a bunch of money during the Industrial Revolution and then sort of had a head start on it, we we don't know.
0: Hey, you know, I'm looking right now at uh, chapter five, and this is all I have to look at is just the Amazon uh, uh, look inside thing. So chapter five is. Uh, contactee rustling, and it's part of a 1979 lecture. And there's a whole series of types that he's listing, um, including uh, uh, trance contactees, hallucinatory contactees, uh, astral projection contactees. Uh, what was the content of this lecture? And this is obviously a transcription of a lecture he gave.
1: Uh, I'm at my computer, so I can look this. Uh, look at this. We've got chapter five. That was it. Was indeed a revelatory. Uh, experience when i came across that that was one of the first things i
0: found and that was an audio lecture that you transcribed
1: yeah uh yes yes and uh trying to find uh find it here i initially included it in a uh i did this big dvd this is a project where i put everything that i had from the video series the mothman's photographer which was 36 hours 33 plus 3 bonus hours And I put those, all that audio on, a into, you know, into audio form and all the interviews uh, that I did on the radio, I collected all those on one disc and it fills an entire DVD, 4.7 gigs, I think. And I had that in there, but then I, uh, transcribed it and I think it appeared, it it did, it appeared in, uh, Mothman's photographer two book. But in this case, I believe may have added a little to it, um, I'll talk about the contactees in a second, but I added, I got some material that uh, was from another lecture at that time, and, and added it to the end of it. So it's got, and then an article that he had written about cattle mutilation went with. I uh, added that in as well. He did some articles in in his own newsletter called Anomaly, which a lot of people haven't seen before, and there were some good things in there particularly regarding the medical aspects there's a chapter called um, medical aspects of non-events so the non-event is a word for the induced experience where the event doesn't seem to have really happened it doesn't mean that there's not physical results though something happens but what that is is unknown because usually these people people are alone and we don't know exactly what happened to them. They, they they feel as if they were taken on a spaceship to wherever, right? And are left back where they started with a note in their hand or something. Or they're, you know, hundreds of miles away from where they were before. But uh, the different categories, you have the uh, trans contactee. This is a person who has an experience it's a religious miracle type of thing. People go into a trance; they see the Virgin Mary or whatever. This can happen with UFOs. Uh, the second type is the post-hypnotic contactee who has some mission to do after their hypnotic experience, and that is, you know, they have that note in their hand or something that tells them to go do something else, and they're they're almost couriers or something. One of the things I discovered. Around that same time, was that Milton Erickson, the great hypnotist, had figured out a way—the bet that the best way to hypnotize someone was to return them back to the exact point at which you hypnotized them in the first place—and therefore, the entire experience would be buried in their subconscious, and they wouldn't be able to remember. And of course, the spy agencies try to use this as well to to keep uh, information locked away from the actual person that was carrying the information. And there is some overlap with the spy agencies on some of this stuff. One of the, I guess, interesting things was that Kiel said that it wasn't the Air Force that was really doing most of the UFO stuff, it was the Navy.
0: And I've heard that plenty of times before, too, yeah.
1: Yeah. The third type of contactee is a hallucinatory contactee, and that is, he's calling this the induced hypnotic the first type is just you having you're just sort of out there in the field and you have a religious experience. The induced one is a little more involved, where the person you know goes off with the space with the spaceship and everything. There's those type three subgroup distortions of reality, almost like an occultic force, like almost a spell is put on a person and induce them to have a UFO experience. Type four is the astral projection contactees, where they're going out of body. And, it, and it's interacting with the aliens. The type 5 is a cosmic illumination contactee, uh, where the person experiences cosmic illumination, so they have a jump in IQ and talents and things. And this is behind, you know, a lot of the religious starts of big religions. If it, if it goes wrong, though, they become a false illuminated contactee, falsely illuminated where they they basically uh, go crazy. They can't enter. They can't uh, integrate the experience. And there's usually no support around them for the validity of their of their experience because these are valid experiences, even though we can't prove what happened to them. And it seems to be somewhat hallucinatory. Something did happen, and. It often means that the person is a special person because they may be one of the 10% of the population that is highly psychic. And this is another revelatory thing that I ran across in his work. It's the importance of that fact that only 10% of the population really can just super easily tap into the super spectrum. And 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 a portion of that 10% can actually see into the future. And this places the person at odds with the culture. And some people are actually jealous of this. In fact, a lot of people are, and because these are the people that pour so much effort into uh, their religious practice, whatever it might be, hoping to have that experience where they achieve oneness. But this happens naturally with some people, and it appears to be basically genetically passed on. Therefore, you have whole groups and families and Organizations that have been pitted against each other at a subconscious level, maybe uh, over a long period of time, because it's it's like inheriting a lot of money or something. It's not kind of a rare thing, and it doesn't really uh, go outside the family. So, and then later in that chapter, he gets into the mutilations, cattle mutilations, somehow, some way. (laughs) <laughs> went from contactees to cattle mutilations, and,
0: and I'm just looking at the date here. April 1974 would have been very early in the cattle mutilation uh, literature.
1: Well, he was writing about the mutilations in '66. I oh. mean, it's 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 unbelievable. I mean, that's a whole ten years earlier than most people typically think of the mutilation situation. That Keel had been uh, he he wrote about him in '66, but he knew about him even earlier than that. I think they started in. Earlier in the sixties, you
0: So, just having known him and worked with him, you know, why was he so tapped in? I mean, I, it, was it somehow synchronistically arriving in his lap, or was he was he just you know doing that much hard work to find the information?
1: I think so. He was really he was obsessed, and that was one thing he really talked to me about because he knew exactly what he was talking about when it came to obsession with material, and he saw that in me and. Wanted to, you know, give me a few pointers on it, which are very helpful.
0: And what kind of pointers? Because I feel like I'm obsessed with the material, too. I could use those pointers.
1: Um, I don't think it was any specific kind of thing you could do. It was just, here's the kind of attitude you should have. Like, don't, don't take it so seriously. Don't buy into the messages that you get right away. And it was weird because that same weekend we had kind of a mystical experience there in the haunted hotel, the low Hotel, where one Mothman witness was seeing three shimmering beings. And another one was hearing the voices of the beings in a different room. And one of them was pretending to be John Keel.
0: Pretending to be I mean, John Keel so, in some sort of like uh, altered state?
1: You could just hear a voice. It sounded like John Keel, but it wasn't him. He was all the way down at the other end of the hotel sleeping, huh. and he had this stuff going on around him. I think you've you've asked, you've made a good point. He really was tapped in, and the phenomenon was following him. He had a cosmic illumination experience or two himself, many probably. Sounds like because they come in stages. We had these little satori's every, uh, every so often when you're at a crisis point or something. Or, and he, he had those, and I think it followed him around, and it transferred to us after we met him. We had the most unbelievable five or six years after we met him. All the people that, there were three or four of us that hung around with him the whole time, it was that whole weekend, and... We all experienced similar um, simultaneous poltergeists, phone calls, weird phone calls. We tracked one of the phone calls down because it seemed to be associated with a uh, van, an unmarked van. Or it wasn't unmarked. It was a government van. Sorry. It was unmarked except for the plates, which were government plates, and they said 111L. Well, uh, one of us tracked down that number to a location in Akron which was the address was 1111 Independence Avenue and we went there I eventually got over there the week the week before I got there there was some mothman sighting less than a mile away which was reported by a whole other group an organization Um, this had been a Indian burial ground turned into a mall and the buildings that were there formed an eleven when you looked at them from the sky. It was the Masonic eleven. There's a Masonic number one that they do, and it's also the symbol of the Ohio Masons. So at this eleven eleven address, you get buildings that look like the Masonic sign of the state of Ohio. So we found some of the cars looked like they were Army Airborne 25. So we figured, oh, well, they've got an internet thing there. They're probably watching us or something. We don't really know. But then they later built another set of buildings there that from the sky read 111L, the exact number of the license plate that led us to the address.
0: And and what what year would this 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 have been? This was
1: 2006. Okay. Um, that was when it started, and I may not have gotten there until 2007. But this sparked the whole synchromysticism thing, really. Because nothing was out there about 11.11 at that point. And 11.11 caught on as a meme, and then a lot of people that were into that meme seemed to have become, quote, synchromysticists. I think John Keel, through this interaction with us and reaching out and coming down in his later years to be there at the unveiling and being so gracious to everybody, I think... And it just, whatever energetically is going on with him, transferred. And I was talking to him about these synchronicities as they were happening, and I sort of think that he's the the father of synchromysticism, even though no one would, would probably, you know, think of that, even. But that's kind of really what happened. I don't know what other people would say about why they got involved in synchromysticism, but I know that... The, nothing about it was out there, and it was nothing about synchronicity as a research tool um, involving, you know, stuff like the Masons or the Men in Black or what I call synchro conspiracy. It was there was nothing. The only person was Eugenia Maser's story, who writes in that kind of style where she is trying to relate or relate things that happen during the day as if they they might be synchronous, and some some of them are pretty amazing. Uh, but the fact that she took the time to catalog those in two or three of her books was helpful for me and gave me an idea for how I could do my books, which are based on the videos that I did. And so I really started honing in on the synchronistic part of the phenomenon and Kiel really thought that that was a key thing.
0: And, that, and, and he thought um, from personal experience that it was a key thing? Like having yes, having been you know doing this type of research for decades at that point.
1: Yes, he had had those experiences. Okay, and now this is some, this is
0: something he, that I hear he, a lot. I mean, Nick Redfern talks about this, where you know he he knows he's on the right track, and he knows he's got an interesting story when when there's synchronicities surrounding the events that he's trying to research. Personal synchronicities yes, for him. And when, I,
1: and when I was with him. It triggered the phenomenon. There was stuff happening when I was—I spent a week with him. It was every day. It was something else. It was real stuff. It was really unusual. There was a a lone coyote that kept showing up, and and Nick would notice everything. It was like of, I would say that of, of the, all the people that were driving around, you know, we would have like five or six people in a car. He was the most observant. He caught everything. All kinds of little things like that.
0: And that doesn't surprise notice.
1: me. I don't think we saw any owls though.
0: Yeah, that's one thing. Hey, is now just out of curiosity, is there anything in the uh, keel stuff about owls? I mean, obviously, there's the the reports no. that the uh, the Mothman sightings themselves were kind of uh, written off by debunkers as you know probable owl sightings.
1: There's nothing in that book about it, and I haven't really run across it yet. But I have still, there's a lot of stuff I haven't gotten to yet. Um, I've got a certain amount of access to his archives now that I didn't have before. So he gave me some stuff. Um, There was a lot of stuff that was saved after he died that has not been cataloged. And I'm just sort of waiting for that stuff to be cataloged. It's not under my control, but once we know what all's in there, I'll be able to to look for that. There may be something about owls in there. I know he used references to birds a lot just in daily stuff he mentioned birds two or three times in point pleasant and it was strange i mean it was like there there was a flock of birds that came by when i was talking to him outside it was it was kind of odd and he noticed it right away and he said something about how you can tell a lot about what's happening with by watching bird behavior you can tell when storms are coming and stuff like that and General weather patterns, or any. He, he also mentioned that uh, the day before the Silver Bridge collapsed, all the birds were gone from Point Pleasant. And that the same thing happened in Seattle in 1947, the year that uh, the, the UFOs started being seen here with Kenneth Arnold and, and Mount Rainier.
0: Oh, so the birds were actually uh, absent.
1: There were, we were absent birds in Seattle in 1947. Another weird thing that happened in 47 was a sniper who shot, I think it was like 100, 100 different people beneath the knees. What does it have to do with anything? <laughs> well, it may.
0: Now, this was There's in Seattle of, area?
1: Um, I think it was all over the country. Or it was mostly the west, yeah, west part, western part, I think. But... Uh, Whenever there's a new a new meme being pushed, you'll often have these sniper attacks and shootings and things. I mean, it, I was surprised to see that they had that that had happened back then, that far back. I don't know. It just smells wrong to me. It smells like that was, you know, maybe a military guy who's who had been programmed and gone off the reservation, you know. Yeah. But a lot of these things do have a diversionary. You know, capability like with the uh, DC, the DC sniper who actually lived in my neighborhood here. When he was doing his thing, that allowed Congress to pass the Patriot Act.
0: And that would so have been UFOs. In your neighbor- he was from your neighborhood in Seattle. He wasn't
1: from here, but he he was living here in the years up to that to his attacks. He moved like. I don't know if he even moved. He had a place in Tacoma, but he also had a place here. He worked out at the Y, which is about two blocks from my house. And they had a mosque over here about half a block from my house, which has been torn down. But that was the mosque that he attended. And I got to go in there a couple of times. I was photographing it for the uh, historical society. They were wanting to turn that building into a historical building. It wasn't a mosque. It didn't look like a mosque. They just stuck a mosque in, a, in an old building. The UFO stories are have a diversionary quality to them, and Keel was on top of the, you know, the Maury Island case, which had a diversionary. It was sort of the, uh, um, the way Keel described it, Maury Island, which uh, happened two days, or the day before Kenneth Arnold sighting, was probably a case where they were dumping radioactive materials from Hanford into the ocean, and they had a up, and one of the one of the transport things uh, blew up, <laughs> and that's the what fell on the boat. Fred Crisman comes in and says, "Oh, well, they were UFOs. They were round. They're saucers." And it was almost like he knew that they were going to be kicking off the UFO thing a couple days later, and decided this would be a good way to cover up this snafu. And Keel had a long uh, correspondence with Crisman, which I'd really like to get a hold of. Oh, my
0: word. That's fascinating. That's
1: I hope there's something in the, in the files. Of, uh, I've only got like one or two letters that Crisman wrote to Keel. But, of course, he's notorious for maybe being involved in the JFK assassination, also being involved in Mari Island. And he was also involved in the Mothman case. He showed, he showed up uh, in West Virginia uh, posing as a UFO investigator. And, uh, so there's a lot more to the Mothman story, at least at the conspiratorial level. Well, and, and also just in trying to figure out what the heck's going on. I mean, it's so complicated all the way around, you know, what are these UFOs? Are these being built there? Are they early drones or are they, or is this valley just inundated with natural UFO lights, um, uh, that could burn you, you know, quite badly or mess you up? What was the Mothman creature? What was the Bigfoot creature that was being seen right next to Mothman? And practically same night, same part of town, Mothman or Bigfoot? Well, what what's going on? These are questions that Keel, you know, had the uh, foresight to see were that were important. So we don't know. Maybe Mothman and Bigfoot are related.
0: Well, I mean, in was one, one th- sense, in one sense, the entire the entirety of the yeah. the sort of Fordian... Uh, phenomena is seems to have like, uh, a, a, you know, the only way I can say it is that it has a, has a similar mood, and you can sort of sense it in the stories. And to me, that implies, you know, I, I kind of extrapolate that on a personal level. To me, that just I get the sense very strongly that they're all connected in some yeah. in some mysterious there one, way.
1: There was one case where a Mothman was seen flying up into a UFO.
0: And this was part of the Point Pleasant sightings?
1: Yeah. Um, This was a, this didn't surprise me because uh, I was once a Buddhist priest for a while and learned a lot about Newsome Tibetan monks. And they said that this is very common over there, that these balls of light flew around and that they were sometimes the spirits of dead people, sometimes they were the spirits of living gurus. Uh, and some of them claimed that they could turn into the ball of light, and then at the other end they could turn into a garuda or a birdman.
0: And garuda or birdman is some is you know the, you treat that almost synonymous with the Mothman f- phenomena.
1: Yeah, but I mean, there's a uh, just it just it's a it's a little out there. You know, are, are, is Mothman a thought projection of some monk sitting in a cave somewhere? Maybe. But there is a there is at least one monk who's written a whole book about it and claims that he can do it. And if you look at my uh, Skype picture, that's him. That's that's the monk right there.
0: Oh, that's the monk. It's funny because I thought that was you yeah. dressed. I thought that yeah. was you and you like. Are you dressed up like as a as younger, like in your own, like with a funny black hair and, and dressed up as a garuda? Yeah. So I'm looking yeah. at it right now.
1: That's he's disappeared. We don't know what happened to him, but. Uh, uh, he looks like the thing that, that my sister photographed in the window. That's we think.
0: what I was going to say. It it, reminded, it reminds me a lot of that photograph of uh, that your sister did in, in 1974 or whatever it would have been. Yeah,
1: 73. 73. And then uh, I showed this picture to Harriet, uh, who had a lot of, she's, she has the, the Agent Scully marks on her neck, just like in X-Files, and saw Mothman uh, said that, that this guy, this monk, had showed up in her house like in a spec- as a spectral vision. And this is exactly what he claims in his book. He claims that he can fly as a Garuda to your house, show up, and minister to you. He's somehow there to help you. I don't know if he makes unannounced house calls or if he goes to people that are already tapped in. I don't know. But it's very odd. Very, very odd. it was one of the most shocking things that uh, that happened, I think, that just running across that guy. And if I, I've got his book. It's called "Cities of Lightning.":
0: and is he is he in India?: We don't know. Probably. No, is that where, where the book was written? He, is that the source of the book?:
1: uh, he was in a he was in a uh, monastery in New York. Oh, okay. And uh, Blue Dolphin, I think, published his book. And if you want to just find out about all the different Garuda symbologies, he's he's got them in there. There's lots of fabulous verse describing the qualities, the energetic qualities of these creatures or, or the creature. I mean, and yeah, I, I believe he puts the Garuda in the uh, Heruka class of godlike beings, which are fierce, uh, fierce protectors. The Garuda would be in charge of the bird. Uh, I guess section or the Garuda represents the void. So it's the, the S es- the essence of magnetism and, and energy, the dark matter, dark energy permeates everything. So this is why he can appear anywhere at any time. And I think reconnect people. I think there's, it's almost like this, this energy that can come through you and make new connections or, you know, because it can, it can permeate every part of you that it actually makes connections that are help can be helpful. I and I don't know what it, that all depends on exactly. If you have to react in a certain way or anything, but it can be helpful as long as a person doesn't go down the tubes because they get bad advice or in India, if you see the Garuda, you'll get a lot of good support for that. If in Indonesia, anywhere in Asia, you'll get good support. If you're Native American, you'll get good support. If you're average American, you, you probably won't. Although, I do have... I have heard from a couple of Mothman witnesses that when they went to seek psychiatric help, they were told that seeing Mothman is not a... What was the word? It's not suggestive of a disease of an actual mental illness, and no drugs are no d- drugs will be prescribed.
0: And this is this is through mental health professionals. Where?
1: This is yes, in Ohio. Okay. Uh, this this guy actually lives near the Akron location where Mothman was seen. He he's not the one that saw it though. That time, he's seen he's seen it in his house, and his sister has seen it in her house, in that same house, and then wherever she moved to. It sort of follows you. And I wonder if Mothman (laughs) followed me to Seattle because we've had three sightings of Mothman at four in Seward Park, which is, strangely, a place that I used to go to with my Buddhist mentor, who was sort of uh, my mentor through through the priest process, and he told me he knew a lot about Native American history in the area he grew up here, and he said this was their, you know, the Indian's super sacred place. It's an island, basically.
0: And give me, and, give me some. Oh, keep going. Uh, but I want to ask about the uh, the some insights into like these reports, these Mothman reports in the park.
1: Yeah. Well. well yeah. So so he he located. A, he told me there's a sacred spot on this. There's a highly sacred spot on the island itself. And he said he couldn't tell me. He, I had to find it myself. Which was interesting. And I kind of knew the general area though. So I had a, a friend I've known here for 20 years, worked with him in construction stuff, just a regular guy, but he's highly psychic. He's half Filipino and his, his Filipino grandmother had been a shaman. So he's sort of ripe for this kind of stuff. And sure enough, he has had several crazy experiences with different blue orbs and things similar to Philip K. Dick's, uh, Valis experience, mm-hmm. uh, Tessa Dick, Phil's wife or widow, uh, wrote an intro for that book, flying saucer, uh, the new book. Mm-hmm. And she talks about the similarity to the mop man situation with her and Phil seeing this f- floating orb that transmits information into your mind. So Kenny, my friend, has these orbs and i've seen him undergo a great transformation in the 20 years i've known him as he and now he's i think he's got his master's now and he's maybe going for his doctoral doctoral uh in uh psychology at uh, antioch mm-hmm. but he's seen mothman three times over there now and he's also had some prophetic dreams that i've i get reports from him every now and then i He'll just call and say, I had this strange dream, and he'll tell me about it. And I've actually gotten made some connections in my research through through him. And it's funny because he's not interested in Mothman at all. He doesn't understand why he's seeing it. He's not out for any fame, fortune, nothing. He doesn't want his name to be used. But the weird thing about it is that this third time, when he saw it, he saw it in the same place he had seen it the second time. And he starts telling me about the... The sighting, I'm like, well, that's weird. It sounds very similar to the, to the time you saw it a year, uh, year or two ago, which I have a tape of his, you know, talk, him talking about it. He didn't remember it at all. He's totally wiped out the second event.
0: That is so common in this, in this realm, yeah.
1: And, and the two have sort of become fused together, and I figured out what may have happened is that he was with someone who saw this as well, and she said something about forgetting it wanting to forget it as it was happening. And I think she triggered him to forget the earlier one or something. But it was glowing. The second time he saw it, it would look like a Birdman. This time it was glowing green mass, similar to what we kind of saw in 2002 when we went back to West Virginia. We saw these shimmering things that, that are, I think, the things that came to the Low Hotel. The three beings that we we're seeing there had traveled along with us and, they, and this, this, this phenomenon travels, uh, follows Kenny around, he claims that Mothman pulled on him his toe with his talon, of his claw.
0: Wait, well, so, so he says that he pulled Mothman's talon?
1: Mothman grabbed his toe with his talon. Okay. But it changed into a human hand, or it changed from a hand into a talon. And he said, remember door 11. This is the 11 thing again. We're back to 11.
0: Remember door 11.
1: Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a vision about door 11. And the funny thing is, when that photo was taken in 73 by my sister, there was another guy. There was a guy in the house visiting who, at the time the picture was taken, who I met in Point Pleasant again. I hadn't seen him in 30 years. Told me that Mothman had grabbed him on the shoulder. At the same location that I saw it, where Harriet saw it, where Tommy saw it, where Mrs. Atkins saw it, right next to this school that it burned down, which we think Charles Manson may have burned down. And this is, I hate to bring up Manson because it sounds too incredible.
0: Oh, gosh, I'm, I'm, they, I'm over, like, trying to, like, rein this stuff in. People, yeah, do whatever you need to say. People, yeah. think, people, people think it's made up, but no, it's
1: not. And he may have been influenced negatively by whatever is there in that location. The school's right next to where everything was seen. It's called Bird Mountain, in fact. Did it send Manson over the edge? Did he? Did he or did he trigger everything by doing this horrible act which killed a couple of kids? And did this trigger you know, the ghost phenomenon where the ghost wants you to solve its, the crime? And Mothman somehow is overseeing this process or something. I don't know. Yeah. But but Mothma, but the Garuda is said to police this kind of activity. He polices occult activity, elemental, earth elemental activity, that kind of stuff. Because he can permeate all spaces. And he's about, he represents a force that tamps down evil, essentially.
0: Hey, while I've got you, let me, I'm going to read something to you. This is something that I would just, this is, uh, I pulled this up when I knew we were going to do the, uh, oops, where'd it go? Okay, here we go. Um, this is a blog post I wrote in uh, on Sunday, September 25th, 2011. So just a little bit shy of two years ago. And it's, I had a very lucid dream and I've been making a very real effort. If I have a a dream or a synchronicity or some sort of event or even an owl sighting, uh, which I'll point out that I did see an owl crossing my path last night, it was a little bit off in the distance. I couldn't really make much of it, but um, but the, this. If I have a dream and I kind of have a sense, like if I really have a vivid dream, I you know I'll I'll say as much. And so this was this was a surprisingly vivid dream. So I uh, was at a, a uh, UFO conference, and it was in some sort of big lecture hall, and, and John Keel was there. Now um, I I knew perfectly well that this was a dream, and I and I knew that Keel had died and i was aware that the fact that he was in my dream might imply that you know that the spirit world where he's you know where he is now and the dream realm that i was that i was immersed in while having the dream could have been overlapping so um so i went up to him and i said you know mr keel how are you doing and he smiled and i'm i'm reading now from my text he said fine just fine and then i nervously asked well from where you are and from what you know like how am I doing? Like how am I doing with this ongoing research stuff? And then I can't exactly remember what he said, but I do know he seemed very pleasant and he nodded and he smiled, so my assumption is that he said, you know yes, you're doing fine, everything's fine now then we left the the the, the conference hall and and we and we went out outside through the parking lot and there was this kind of old kind of classic gas station, and we went there, I went there with him, and he he offered to buy me a cup of coffee. And so before he could buy the coffee, he set all his coins out on the countertop uh, at the gas station. And then he held his hand above that, and then the correct number of coins floated up into his hand in order to make the exact change. And that's when I woke up.
1: That's funny because there's an intro uh, to, to Flying Saucer to the center of your mind that has Gray um, Barker... It's written by Gray Barker. He's talking about meeting Keel at a convention. And he tells Keel this incredible story about these boys that saw Mothman in a barn. And Mothman turned into a golden boy who was crying golden tears. And they step outside, just like you were saying. And then Keel responds with this. He doesn't even address it, really. He just goes into this feeling that there's a massive conspiracy going on, and it's all very dire, and they're about to take over the world. And I was just, uh, I was just looking at the introduction that I'm going to have in the second book by Doug Skinner, who knows Keel more than anybody, or knew, you know, his closest friend at the end. And all, all along the way, I think Skinner says that indeed Keel had this very uh, alarming conspiracy that he had figured out. That is mentioned in some of his unpublished uh, papers, so we're trying to find some of those and and figure out what that is. That is what I'm, I'm talking when I, you know, when I was talking about his um, his speaking in code. I think he was doing it for that reason that he really felt very seriously that some breakaway civilization had take was taking over.
0: And I would say. You know, you don't have to drink from the same well as uh, David Icke, but there's certainly some weird stuff going on right now, collectively, you know, gigantically in the the world through... That That just leaves me perplexed, I have to say. Like, I don't know why I stuff mean, you, is happening, but it certainly is happening I, at, a, at an accelerated rate.
1: I, I think if it is, it's, it's a combination of different people from different countries. I don't think you can pin it on any one country. Like, you can't just say it's the Nazis...
0: Or the Vatican or, or you know, the, right. the Rockefellers. Yeah, I agree.
1: It's, it, it's, it's got to be a combination of all of them. Uh, there was one interesting article he wrote, Fireballs, Deadly Fireballs from the Sky, which uh, is going to be in the third book. It's actually embedded in, in, a, in an article, a long article he wrote, called uh, The Flap Phenomenon in the United States, or the, uh, Beyond Condon was another title lots of stories about meteors that changed direction they were intelligently controlled meteors and these often came from northern canada i think the northwest i can't remember exactly where but and it was and it was uh, supposed to be british uh, british uh, the british had come up with you know these synthetic meteors and maybe also had some saucers But you also had saucers coming up from South America. And they were coming into the U.S. in a pincher-like way from top and bottom and then coming in uh, the Mississippi Valley from either end and then going up the Ohio Valley. Now, I mean, whether or not that's an ancient, uh, ley-line, energetic, natural UFO phenomenon or it's some real craft that are being flown between points – you can make a case for that. I don't stand by it completely, but when you look at Woody Derenberger's experience uh, with Indrid cold and being taken to South America, and then you look at, uh, where some of these, uh, drones may have been built. They, they, there probably were some being built there and there probably were some being built in Canada and there probably were some being built in the Ohio Valley. And I think that, uh, they were mixing themselves in maybe with the, uh, Whatever prior ancient phenomenon pattern there was. The government researched this stuff early on, starting at least in 46, probably earlier, uh, maybe even in 34, when the ghost flyers started uh, flying over Europe. But certainly when Jimmy Doolittle went to uh, Sweden in 42 to investigate the Foo Fighters, they definitely would have started then. Uh, trying to find out all they could about the phenomenon. And I think they did discover, and Kiel thinks they did discover that there is a natural phenomenon that cannot be explained, but it's not a threat. It just happens. It's not like a national threat. However, some of the UFOs behaved in a way that did appear to be a national threat and made specific, you know, aggressive moves Over the White House and other places, uh, defense installations, atomic plants, in an effort to blackmail um, somebody, somebody in the government, corporations. We don't know exactly.
0: Why why do you say? Why do they say as an attempt to blackmail? I mean, that seems like an attempt to to get a message across or to intimidate.
1: Well, this is called. uh, This is a great chapter called uh, "Our ETs Blackmailing Earth," and I think that's in the second book. I uh, added some nice material to the end of it that went with it. Yeah, I mean he comes right out and and says it's some breakaway civilization or something that's that's trying to prove that it has superiority. So, maybe at some back channel of the government somebody's communicating with with our government and saying, you know, we want, I don't know what who who knows what they want. Maybe they wanted more resources. We want access to your coal or we're going to overfly DC and show you we mean business. Mm-hmm. Could be anything. But uh, that's a basic idea, though.
0: Hey, so here, let me... um, as, Just as far as a personal question, like, you know, what advice... I'm going to get back to this. I guess I asked you this once before, and I just want to touch on it again. Any advice you would have for me? Because I do feel like I have fallen down this rabbit hole and, uh, and have gotten to a point where, you know, like I'm not quite sure... Uh, you know which end is up in a way, um, and this is mostly the. And I'll say the owl research I've have been doing has been you know fun and pleasant, and I and I don't really have any, not many scary stories are emerging from it. The stories that are emerging where people are reporting these owls, you know, real owls tend to have a kind of um, playful and uh, and almost um, optimistic vibe to them, or, or let me just say like spiritually enlightening vibe to them.
1: Oh uh, well um I might have to know more about your rabbit hole, but I would say that I, I just thought of the triangle, the triangle is sort of the bird the shape of the bird as it flies. The triangle represents one corner is, is natural, like religious phenomena, and one's synthetic, and the top one is induced, which can go to either or the other two. And you're you can view yourself seated in a meditation posture inside this nice, safe triangle where you can look to the right or left and see if someone presents you with a case, you can look right or left and see which one you think it is. And if it's not that, it might be the top one. It might be the induced phenomenon where they are simply having an array of imaginative experiences. And let's face it, there are some people out there doing that. I don't know if they're doing it on purpose I think some of them are, some of them are, are not. They really uh, do think that they, you know, flown to Venus or whatever, and you have to respect that. But at the same time, don't be thrown off by it, because there's three possibilities, and you just you just make a guess at which one you think it is, and and move on. What what particular rabbit hole are you? Uh,
0: well it just seems like i've become obsessed i'm having these synchronicities a lot of the the uh it's the and i'll say the uh oh the owl stuff in particular has been fun been real fun but uh just as far as my own experiences as a whole have been you know challenging and uh i feel like i need to make a a big change in my life in order to you know fully follow this and and in a in I may cut some of this out because it might feel sort of personal but uh the um the experience itself when I'm when I'm researching it when I'm writing about it when I'm making calls like this I feel alive I feel genuinely excited and it's a cool challenge and uh it's a mystery and I you know I like digging into the mystery um and then I found that my day-to-day life has become drudgery and then i look forward to this what we're doing right now and the research and and i can't help but think that um that i'm being guided somehow in that direction and i don't know if that's reading yeah. too much into it no
1: well yeah yeah i mean keel was like that he he stayed up all night and, and worked feverishly on stuff and then you know would sleep from 6 till noon and You breakfast at three. I mean, that's not, I do that a lot. I do stuff like that. You know, my schedule's all over the place. I get obsessed with getting something out. And it's a good thing uh, for my situation right now. It works for for where I'm at right now. I'm sort of living the life of a hermit.
0: That's, yeah, that's very much what, yeah, the life of the hermit is what my life has become in a lot of ways. And what I do do is reach out. You know, through the internet in a way, and the people I'm engaged most with are the people who would be abductees or contactees or psychics or people who've had profound paranormal experiences.
1: Yeah, well, the problem is there's not enough people. I mean, there's so many dumbed down people out there, and we got to remember there's only 10% of the population that really has second sight, uh, and that's probably the category you're after. There's not enough of those in any community to really support you in your endeavors and i found that that's a major issue it's a major issue for me for keel for a lot of people um there's not the support in the community for it and you'll lose uh you'll lose friends you may lose your partner these are things that keel talked to me about and they happened and even though i thought i was i was doing it in the best possible way didn't matter it's just too weird for most people flat out, and you wouldn't believe, I mean, you would believe, actually. I'm oh, sure you I would be able to relate to some of, some of my stories of uh, being marginalized in various ways by the typical American uh, group. It's it's just, I, I've seen it so many times, I can almost predict it. I can see all the signs uh, with people, and I think as you get older, you just get better at, uh, I, I don't censor myself, but at the same time, I don't bother too much with most people and you do have to seek out the other 10% and the internet is, is one of the only ways to do it.
0: Yeah. it's been, it's been a godsend for me. So yeah, that's interesting.
1: Um, it's, there's that's, uh, you gotta do what you gotta do. And that's what we're doing where uh, you make your friends where you can find them. And I think they are good friends and it's nice to go to a convention. Like this year, I went to Paranoia Con down in San Diego for the Paranoia Magazine, and that was really fun, and got to meet the X-Files uh, conspiracy guy, Langley. I don't know if you remember that guy. Oh, he's the guy that, the that was gun-
0: the lone gunman. Who's, he did a documentary.
1: He did. He's doing uh, his second documentary, which we were interviewed for, and that was uh, that was fun. He's a very funny guy.
0: What's the theme in the second uh, follow-up Hag- documentary?
1: You know, I don't know. But he just, he interviewed uh, some of us who were speaking there. He was particularly interested in Mothman. I tried to, you know, give him a few things that, like, for instance, my friend Harriet, who has the two bites on her neck, the vampire marks, like Scully had. And I told him, you know, we actually have a real Mothman witness who has these marks. How did you guys know that? To put that in the show. And he didn't really have an answer other than they researched it really well, but they certainly didn't know about Harriet at that time.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So there must be others out there who have these marks,
0: or this that you know. My sense is that also that the uh, the creative process can bring forth you know these things can just well up and emerge out of the ether, and 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 I and I just feel that there's a power in the creative process. The Uh the scriptwriters could just uh, find these or latch onto these ideas unknowingly and just write them thinking that, Ooh, this is a cool idea and just add them to the script.
1: Well, was, uh, yeah. And, and he's like that. Uh, Dean Haglund is the real deal. He really is a good conspiracy theorist. And I felt like I'd met an old friend and we had a great time. I got to drive him down to comic con cause he was on a panel discussion down there. Um, really, really uh, enthusiastic person, a good resource, I think, for all conspiracy people and paranormal people, too. Um, he's, he's, uh, he's got it going on. So um, another interesting thing about that trip to uh, San Diego was Ron, Ron, uh, hanging out with Ron Patton, the editor of Paranoia, who um, he had visited Seattle before, soon before I went down there, and we went to Seward Park where the Mothman was seen. <clears throat> I was telling him about that. And I said, yeah, Mothman was seen right over there. And right then, the two eagles that lived in the park showed up. They hadn't been – we were trying to find the eagles. And I was like, they're always here, but they're not here now. We were walking back to the car. And the minute I said, Mothman, there they were in the trees squawking at us. And Ron thought this was some you know, sort of uh, good omen, I think. And that – was you know only a couple of weeks uh, before the other sighting, the third mothman, mothman sighting by this uh, by Kenny. And so one thing that happened while Ron and I were there was the uh, they had a circle around the sun that day. This effect halo effect around the sun. I mm-hmm. took a picture of it. I took a picture of it right after this mothman thing happened. And we were having trouble with the cover of the new book. So I sent the designer this picture of the circle around the sun which was so big I had to take two or three pictures to fit it all in there, but he pieced them all together, and it appears on the cover of the Keel book, and he, and he he took a picture of John Keel at the Mothman statue unveiling, and he put that in front of it, and that's that really nice cover. I mean, a lot of people have commented on it. You've got Keel in a white suit, like Mark Twain, because <laughs> Mark Twain actually grew up in Point Pleasant. He didn't grow up in Point Pleasant. His dad did. Mark Twain's dad. So mm-hmm. I think Keel... Kiel knew this and he was sort of playing on that theme of Mark Twain that day and so it makes for a good cover it's uh, it's like John Keel's, you know leading you into the uh, the vortex of the mind where you will discover the secret of the flying saucers which he would always claim that he had at the, at the start of his many talks he would say I'm going to tell you the secret of the saucers
0: and did he ever tell it? <sighs>
1: apparently there is i just heard from doug skinner that there is a i think it's an unpublished article called the answer
0: oh i would love to read that
1: <laughs> yeah so um. i'm going to try to get get him to send that to me and uh
0: we'll see what's in there
1: i, I it doesn't sound like there is an answer actually i mean that's
0: I mean, that's my it's, sense it, too. That I'm sure he's wise enough to say, like, here's the answer. And there is no answer, and he would do it in a very charming way. I'm yeah. sure. Yeah.
1: There's a subjective aspect to it, also. Yeah. It, it, the answer can vary.
0: Yes. There's. Yeah. Now, very, it's very subjective in the sense that that's one thing that I, as the, as I get deeper and deeper into my research, is that the 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 phenomena itself seems to uh, mold itself so specifically to the individual. In a way that that is, uh, it paints a much deeper picture than just little you know, aliens in a metal spacecraft.
1: Well, it's a it's a big issue. Uh, this kind of thing with with precognition. It's uh, something I was talking about earlier, and I didn't quite finish. Was the the, the Keel saw the wanted to work with synchronicity. He thought that we were going to destroy ourselves, and we needed to figure out some tools using utilizing the psychic abilities of people rather than trampling on them is a, is a might be a way to help because according to keel precognition is the pinnacle of psychic ability if you can actually see into the future you've really got something there but the question is would we really even if we knew the future would we really even make the right effort could we make the right effort to to change it if it was say bad and, and then there's always the question of something that seems bad now might not seem bad later. You never really know if, if you want to change the future. Uh, but this was something he and I talked about, and it's in an interview that I'm going to have in the third book. It's uh, one of the last interviews he did where we talked about some of this stuff. And the question was, you know, is the future already set? And he was saying it it must be set in order for people to see it. My response was, yes, but what if what you saw isn't exactly what happened? In our case, in Mound, West Virginia, the, we had visions of the 911 event, you know, 30-some years before it happened, but they weren't totally accurate. And so I've talked to a lot I... of
0: people who have had visions of that they tied directly into 911, and then when they tell me the story of their vision... It, it, as you just said, it's not accurate. It doesn't. It, you know, I had one person very accurately describe like the UN building being attacked in New York, and then she took it very much to be a premonition of 911.
1: Yeah, in the vision that I was shown by my buddy who claimed to have gotten it from Mothman, we did a Indian pact and we held hands and when I saw this vision for like a second or two. It was similar. It was very similar, but they just came in a different angle. It looked—it didn't look like planes. It looked like missiles. And it came from the top down instead of in. So it was similar. And, and it seemed worse. It seemed like there was more destruction in the vision. So what I said to Keel was maybe as the plan went forward, more and more people became aware of it. And somehow through their superconscious or subconscious, you know, it leaked out. And somehow somebody's awareness changed it, so it wasn't as bad as it would have been.
0: Possibly, yeah. I mean, that's any number. You can get it. it. Yeah. yeah, that's as good of idea as any.
1: You can't rule out that it can be changed. And I think, I think there are parallel lines running. I, I just get that feeling from my dreams and just from experiencing life that that there are uh, variations that can occur. Alternate timelines or parallel timelines. Yeah, it's a subjective experience, but it's it's it doesn't mean it's not real.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Um, hey, this has been great. Um, what I'll do is, uh, is uh, I will post uh, all the links to your to the upcoming book, which should be available next week sometime, and um, and do whatever I can to help promote it.
1: Well, thank you very much. Great. Don't Anything- forget to put up. Oh yeah! Don't forget a link to our uh, band, Inter- Interdimensional Vortex League, uh, on iTunes, Amazon, and CD Baby. Okay, great.
0: Anything we've you want got, to
1: say? Uh, we got we've got songs with John Keel in them and other people, uh, different witnesses and strange things. It's uh, it's entertaining stuff.
0: Good, good. I'll, I'll I'll put a link in.
1: Yeah, we've got a trio of Mothman albums. In fact. So that's, I don't know, 30 or 40 songs that have different uh, pieces of dialogue from the Mothman's photographer video series that we stuck in, uh, and, or, you know, in, in some of the songs, not all of them. Some of the stuff is jazzy and made up out of the ether. but uh,
0: Great. All I, righty. Anything you want to say in summation?
1: Um, what's that phrase of Doug Skinner? Is this onward.
0: Onward. Good enough. Fair enough. C-
1: carry onward
0: okay Um, carry on
1: good to talk alright thanks Mike talk to you soon alright bye bye
0: now when you're in this hypnotic trance and you think you're conscious you can see almost anything these things are from outer space there are strange things in the sky sky ships were taking souls away into space and you're going through a trance you think you're conscious. You can see almost anything. The replying saucer sightings go galore. You can see almost anything. There are strange things in the sky. We have to been searching for the strength. The flying saucer sightings galore. We have to take the little people seriously. These things are from outer space, and you're going through a trance you <laughs> That was The String, the John Keel mix, by the Interdimensional Vortex League, from the album Mothman Freakout, and that would be Andy Colvin's band. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.